welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Before I begin our message this morning, I would like to make this uh, brief observation that Judy, who has served in our uh, office here for over 11 years, uh, Pastor Griswold brought her in to serve our congregation uh, has by her choice retired and um, she retired last week and she's not here today for us to say thank you but next week she will so we want to in a special way uh, put our arms around both her and MG who's celebrating his 80th birthday next week and thank her for her years of service to our congregation and we have um, uh, asked Alicia Lucero if she will take up the responsibilities of our church secretary, and the board is going to be looking at that upon their decision. And But I'd like to introduce uh, Alicia to you now so that you know who's in the office. Would you stand, Alicia? And we want to welcome you uh, to the church office here. And so your communications with our church here uh, will be with Alicia, and uh, we want to ask God's blessing on her ministry too. And I hope that you'll support her and welcome her warmly. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you today uh, that you have invited us to worship, and we want to understand the wonderful blessings that you have promised to us in your everlasting covenant. This we ask in the Savior's name. Amen. When I got of age to go to college, uh, which was down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, our Adventist college, Southern University, uh, my Mother and father were living close to the campus there, and so I had the opportunity of staying at home while going to college, but pretty quickly they made it clear to me that I would be paying my college bills, and they would not be supporting me. So that was quite a lesson right there of learning how to earn and, and uh, earn my way as I went, you know. And you know something, I took up the challenge, I got a job at the McKee Baking Company, now, some of you may be familiar with that, but that employer has served many young people over the years in helping them to get a Christian education at Southern Adventist University. Well, I was one of those who boxed those little Debbie cakes that you see in Walmart and in Target. Uh, they're now shipped out throughout the whole country, probably internationally too. But that helps some Adventist young person to get through school. And I actually earned my way, paid my bill at Southern Adventist University. Now, my wife, she received a grant and back in those days, $10,000 would get you four years of Adventist education, higher education. Uh, a little secret is that uh, she had to earn that a little bit because she had to qualify as far as um, scholastics was concerned, but it turned out to be a grant of $10,000. But I had to work hours and hours and hours for my education. And you know, uh, probably that has... You've had similar experience in your life where all of your relationships in life are probably based upon 
a bargain or a contract, and you have to earn and work for everything that you get in life. The wonderful thing about God's plan of salvation, his covenant, is that he does not ask us to earn it. He actually puts uh, a deposit in our bank account, yes, even before we were born, let's call it a trillion-dollar deposit in your personal account. Now, would that get you through 70 or 80 years of life, that kind of a deposit in advance? He has actually given you life before you were born by virtue of his death for you upon the cross. And he didn't ask you to earn it. And that is the nature of God's covenant. It's a gift and not a contract. And you believe the wonderful promises that he has given to you. You know, almost everywhere I go, I meet parents who tell me sadly that uh, one or more of their children are no longer in the church and They were raised in the church. They went to Sabbath school, uh, even church school, Christian academies, etc. But now uh, they've drifted out into the world. And these parents invariably tell me that they are trusting in a promise in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 25. And that promise says, I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Precious. But is there something that, you, that we could do uh, to cooperate with the Lord in this wonderful work of reclaiming lost children? You know, the prodigal son, the father of the prodigal son, he was a wonderful man, wasn't he? But he still had a rebellious son that went away from home. And so we are not assured of 100% success, necessarily, in keeping our young people in the church family. Even Jesus lost one of his 12 disciples. And he actually almost lost Peter. And the others forsook him and fled at the time of the crucifixion. But there is a reason why we lose some people and it can be corrected. We can cooperate with the Lord in helping to reclaim our lost young people. The problem is the same one that ancient Israel had continually, and it was the effects of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the promise of the people, oh yes, Lord, we're going to do everything just right, which you have spoken to us. And they promised this in Exodus 19, verse 8. All that the Lord hath spoken, they said, we will do. And so for generations, we have assured our children, yes, the Lord will bless you. He will do this. He will do that for you. But you must do your part. You must do something to be saved. And so the basic idea gets across to them is that the Lord is like a a policeman. He's like a CHP officer. That he won't bother you if you keep out of trouble, but it's up to you to initiate a relationship with the Lord and to maintain it. And if you don't, then God is going to back off. And he's going to leave you to yourself. And so the emphasis is on what you do to save yourself and not on what he has done and is doing to save you. 
And what is the inevitable result? Well, it is dependence on self, and that leads to alienation from Christ. Alienation from Christ. And then wandering away. Well, let's hope that it's not too late to proclaim the new covenant to the children who have lost their way. But in the meantime, let's give the new covenant to the children of today. Let's teach them about God's promise, his initiative, what he is doing to save them. They must know that Jesus is their Savior 100%. They are not their Savior even 1%. Nothing but that good news is going to reconcile our children's alienated hearts to Jesus. There was a wise old writer who wrote this in the book Steps to Christ on page 47. She said, your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. And such promises and resolutions made to God Those are the famous old covenant that she's talking about here, where the children of Israel made the old covenant at Mount Sinai when they responded to God's promise by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Sounds good, doesn't it? Some dear people understand the Lord as approving of their making the old covenant when God later said in Deuteronomy 5.28, I've heard the voice of the words of the people. They have well said all that they have spoken. And that verse is often interpreted as the Lord's enthusiastic approval of their old covenant promise. But those who take that position really don't read far enough because in the next verse... It says, the Lord gives a heave, a sigh, and he says, Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me or reverence me and keep all of my commandments always, that it might be well with them. And Paul says that the old covenant gendereth to bondage, just like Sepsa Christ, page 47, says. And that bondage brings darkness into your soul, even though you try ever so hard to be good. No, your New Year's resolutions will not bring you victory and happiness. The Lord does not ask you to make promises to him. He asks only that you believe his promises to you. His promise is the new covenant And for us to believe his promise is what makes him happy. And in the end, it really makes us happy too. So God's covenant is always a a one-sided promise on his part because he knows that our nature is so weak and sinful that we cannot keep our promises to him. If we promise to... To the Lord, oh yes, I'm going to keep all of your commandments just so, so, so. Then we have to supply the righteousness that the law asks of us. And the Bible tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. 
So we cannot really promise to keep the law so-so. He asks us to believe his promises of Christ, and the law is in Christ Jesus, and believing upon him, seeing the cross of Christ melts our alienated hearts and supplies us with the self-giving, self-denying love of our Savior. When we make promises to him and then inevitably break them later, we feel down on ourselves. We say to ourselves, I'm not good at all. I'm not cut out to go to heaven. But note how Paul speaks of God's covenant as promised in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17. The most beautiful definition of God's everlasting covenant is in Galatians 3.17. It says, The law cannot annul the covenant, that it should make the promise of no effect. The old covenant gives birth to bondage, says Paul. Some people go in church, some people in church even give up in despair, and many go through their so-called Christian experience under a constant cloud of discouragement, trying harder, but the confusion about the two covenants can be resolved very simply. And the problem concerns the law that was given at Mount Sinai. Does that law alter the new covenant that was the straightforward promise of God to Abraham and thus to us? And Paul was probably the first Israelite who clearly understood the function of the law and of the two covenants in the light of Israel's up and down, discouraging Old Testament history. Because in several simple steps, Paul clarifies all of the confusion in his letter to the Galatians. He talks there of the blessing of Abraham, which is to come on everyone, he says in Galatians 3.14 that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So not one human soul is left out of the promise that God made to Abraham. Furthermore, a will or a covenant that anyone makes, even God's covenant, cannot be annulled or added to once the one who writes out the covenant dies. It says in verse 15, and in God's will or covenant, he promised, and then he swore by a very solemn oath to give Abraham the whole earth for an everlasting possession. And this had to mean after the resurrection of the dead, for Abraham could never inherit uh, that way unless he also was given everlasting life. But since only righteousness can dwell in the new earth, the promise had to include making righteous those who believe God's promise. Therefore, the new covenant has to be the essence of righteousness by faith. When we make a covenant, it, it is always a contract. You do so and so, and then I will do so and so. You know, like when you got married, I said, I do. And she said, I do. And we've been doing ever since, you know, working ever since. I've actually discovered now that I'm doing in our marriage because I'm compelled by her love. 
I've actually discovered that now, that my marriage is not a works trip. If my marriage is based, as Paul says, on the agape love of Jesus Christ, then my marriage is compelled and constrained by the love of Christ. But God never makes bargains with human beings. In other words, we don't come to the altar of marriage with God, and God says, I do if you will do. (laughs) That would be a contract. God pledges his surety, Jesus Christ, in advance for your salvation. His new covenant is always an out-and-out promise on his part. God explicitly said that his promise was made to Abraham's descendant. He said singularly his seed, and that seed is Christ. So we are not left out of this because we come into the picture only as being in Christ by adoption through faith. And since God made his solemn promise to Abraham and he sealed it with his oath, nothing under heaven could change one iota so that the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai 430 years after Abraham's time could not be an extra feature that was put into the new covenant it could not invalidate in the least God's one-sided sworn promise to him. And so he writes in verse 18, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The new covenant doesn't specialize in telling us what to do. It tells us what to believe. God's promise. And then Paul asked the logical question everybody asks. Well then, why did God speak the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? You know, the Ten Commandments, when they were spoken, were a very terror-inducing demonstration. There was lightning, and there was earthquake, and a fire, and a death boundary. And you think about Abraham... And God didn't have to do that with Abraham to scare him out of his wits like that. All that God had to do for Abraham was to win his heart by the proclamation of the gospel. And Abraham believed in the cross that he heard from the lips of God. And God wrote his Ten Commandments upon Abraham's heart as so much good news. And then Abraham found his greatest joy in obedience. So why not do the same for Israel when they were gathered at Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land? That would have solved all of the problems that Israel had to meet ever afterwards. Well, Paul explains the reason why the law had to be written in stone. He says in verse 19 of Galatians 3 that the law was added because of transgressions, till the seed, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. Now that word added in the original has the meaning of emphasized or underlined, but not the idea of changing God's will that was made out to Abraham. You know on your computer there is up there on the Word uh, program, a great big B up there. And if you hit that B, what happens to the word that's highlighted? It becomes black and bold, doesn't it? 
And that's what God did regarding his law at Mount Sinai. He emboldened it. He underlined it, it says. But what were the sins? What were the transgressions that that, uh, made this emphasizing, this emboldening so necessary for Israel at Mount Sinai? You know, Abraham's children allowed themselves to become slaves in the land of Egypt. Uh, When God brought them out, he he revealed to them Calvary at Sinai through the giving of the water that Moses struck the rock, and that represented to them Calvary. But when God gave to them the same promise he had given to their father Abraham, they gave a response that really formed the basis of the old covenant. Before we get to the fire and the earthquake of Mount Sinai and the writing of the law on stone in Exodus 20, we find that Israel had already made the mistake in Exodus 19 of forming an old covenant. They wanted to substitute it for God's new or everlasting covenant. And the, the story is really fascinating, for we can actually see ourselves in it. When the people gathered at Mount Sinai, God told to Moses to renew to them the same new covenant promises that he had made to their father Abraham. You can read it with me in Exodus 19, verse 5. He says, Tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. And when he said my covenant, he was referring to the same covenant that he had made to Abraham. His one-sided promise. Keep my covenant, he said. In other words, cherish it. You know, the, the original language there, keep, is the word shamar. It means cherish. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2.15, where we read that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it, or to shamar it, to cherish it. And it couldn't make sense to say that Adam was to obey the garden. Rather, there is a play on words in what God said to Israel. If you will treasure my promise to Abraham, I will treasure you above all peoples. And for us to be happy, as did Abraham, makes God very happy. If you treasure God's promise, believing his promise, indeed you become a precious treasure. And then that Hebrew word, obey my voice, which is Shemaiah, uh, that is used, oh, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and many times it's used to hearken. And so the root meaning of obey uh, really means to listen attentively. If you will listen to my voice and cherish my covenant is what God is saying here. So it's not legalistic at all based on obedience. If you'll listen to my voice. You know, we used to have trouble raising our, as we were raising our children to get them to listen to us, to listen to our instructions. Uh, because 
we'd tell them, all right, can you do this today? You know, here is your to-do list for the day. And they'd just go off and forget everything. That's the way children are, don't, aren't they? And if you're a teacher in a classroom and you're giving assignments for tomorrow and you put them on the chalkboard there, uh, they're not really listening because tomorrow's about 50% of them forget to bring in their assignment, don't they? They just weren't listening. And so if we'll just listen to what God is saying to us and cherish his promise, uh, his love will draw us to himself. And so the Lord was saying to Israel, if you'll listen to my voice and cherish or treasure the promise that I made to your father Abraham, you will be a treasure to me above all people. You're going to be the head, Israel, and not the tail. There's not going to be any reason, no need for the great empires of the world, such as Assyria and Babylon and Grecia and Persia or Rome, to tread down the earth and oppress you, you will, be, you will be above all of the nations. Israel will embody the truths of righteousness by faith. You shall be to me, he says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just think about that. You know what a priest is? A priest is someone who listens to the troubles of others and then brings healing words. You know, in contemporary parlance, we call that a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You know who the supreme psychiatrist is? It's Jesus, isn't he? He's the one who supremely listens to us and brings to us words of healing and forgiveness and change and comfort. And just think of it. God is promising to ancient Israel, he's promising to his people today that if they will listen to his voice and cherish his covenant, that they'll become every one of them in the church, a psychiatrist for the healing of the troubled world. People with their problems will come to people in the church and they will listen and they will bring the healing words of the gospel and the cross. Won't just have to go to the pastor anymore or the conference president. They can go to anyone in the church because they've listened to his promise and cherished it. In other words, Israel's temple would outdo. It would outlast even the Greek Parthenon. You know, today there are ruins of the Greek Parthenon still standing, aren't there? But what's left of the temple? Just a few stones called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It's a testament to the fact that Israel did not cherish God's covenant. Israel did not understand they did not have the faith of Abraham. They were mired in legalistic thinking. They, they made a vain promise, something that God never asked Abraham to do. Oh, Lord, everything that you've asked us to do, we're going to be so careful to do just everything that you have asked us to do. In these words, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, Exodus 19.8. And that was their promise, and they were the ones that formed the Old Covenant. So what could God do? If they will not keep step with him, he must humble himself to keep step with them. And a long detour is now the inevitable result. And it was Paul, finally, who saw the deep significance of this Old Covenant promise of the people 
You can read it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. It says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, as in a prison of our own choosing, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And that word tutor is an interesting word, a pedagogue in the Greek, which means to exercise a stern and harsh discipline. And Paul saw that the old covenant that the people voluntarily put themselves under was functioning like a very stern disciplinarian, a policeman, if you please, a CHP officer, keeping the people of Israel under custody until such time as they could find their freedom again in the kind of justification by faith which their father Abraham enjoyed. And since they brought the old covenant upon themselves, God must let them learn through their own history how vain were their promises to keep his law. The law that was written on the tables of stone imposed upon them a burden of what they ought to do It was a never-ending obligation that they could not fulfill, never giving liberty, but always threatening punishment, if not kept perfectly. And it must serve in this long national detour now as a kind of correctional officer driving them under the law until at last they come to the experience of their father Abraham to be justified by faith and not by their works of the law. And so the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant is simply who makes the promise. In the new covenant, it's God. In the old covenant, it's the people. And the keeping of the promise depends entirely on who makes it. In the new covenant, the foundation is solid rock. In the old covenant, the foundation is sand. Ropes of sand, our promises. Our salvation and Israel's does not depend on our making promises to God or keeping them, but on our believing his promises to us. Believing God's new covenant promise delivers us from the yoke of bondage that Paul speaks of. No longer do we serve him through fear of punishment or even from hoping for some great reward. The new covenant delivers us from the constant sense of futility, never making it. The nagging sense of always ought to be doing something. I must be more faithful. I must do better. I must be more unselfish. I must study more. I must read my Bible more. I must give more in my offerings and etc. The list goes on and on all without end, and this sense of compulsion is just summed up in Paul's expression of being under the elements of the world, the health-destroying angst or anxiety 
that all humans know by nature. The tutor or the jailer of the old covenant just drove Israel through the centuries on a relentless history of ups and downs from Sinai all the way to the crucifixion of their Messiah. The prophets and the judges and some kings tried earnestly but in vain to bring in permanent reformation and revival. Samuel's blessed ministry ended in the people's clamor for a king. We want a king like all of the nations around us. And they overthrew God as their king. Saul, King Saul nearly ruined the nation. David may have believed the new covenant, yes. But then there were such kings as Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. Finally, Josiah tried their utmost to set the people on a right course of reformation and revival, but their revivals always were frustrated by the old covenant mental mentality that produced backsliding and apostasy. And finally, Josiah, the Bible says, was the last good king of Judah, and he was determined to do everything exactly right as the spirit of prophecy of his day, which was the writings of Moses, enjoined. Josiah was going to save the nation from its ultimate ruin, but the youthful king failed in his 30s, and his revival and reformation came to nothing, for he rejected the living demonstration of God's spirit of prophecy in the message that came to him through the most unlikely source that he could think of. God actually spoke to him through the mouth of a pagan pharaoh Necho of Egypt, which is a warning to us of how easy it is for us to reject truth when it comes to us from unlikely sources. From Josiah, it was old covenant history downhill all the way for God's people until under King Zedekiah, Jerusalem and their beautiful temple had to be destroyed and the people were taken captive to Babylon. What a vivid demonstration of how the old covenant gives birth to bondage carried off into Babylon. They never truly recovered the new covenant until they finally lost their nationhood and their crucifixion of their Messiah and the rejection of his apostles. And so in Galatians and in Romans, Paul correctly understands his people's history. He writes that that history was written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come, and that would be you and me at the end of time. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And so what do these two covenants mean to us today? The two covenants are not hemmed in by matters of time as though people live anciently, we're automatically under the old covenant, and now after the cross, we today are automatically under the new. There were people in Old Testament times who lived under the new covenant, and Abraham is surely an example of that. And we today can be living under the old covenant if we don't clearly understand and believe the freedom that giving, the freedom that the gospel gives to us. You know, a gourmet chef can prepare a delicious 
seven-course dinner with good, wholesome food. But if he puts in even a tiny amount of arsenic, would you eat it? It would be spoiled, wouldn't it? And if it doesn't kill us, it'll certainly cause paralysis. And even a tiny amount of old covenant ideas mixed in with otherwise gospel concepts can paralyze a healthy spiritual experience and produce the lukewarmness that so characterizes the church in these last days. And lukewarmness in Jesus' people is a mixture of hot and cold that produces the nausea that Jesus says makes him so sick at his stomach that he feels like throwing up. The healing can come only through a fully recovery of the of the covenant of the truth of the gospel. It's astonishing how old covenant ideas can penetrate into our thinking. Even our hymns are sometimes examples of this. Like that beautiful hymn in our songbook, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. I'm glad that a dear soul last Sabbath morning pointed that out to us and had us change that to sing it, O Jesus, I have chosen to serve thee to the end. It now becomes a new covenant hymn rather than an old covenant hymn by just changing one word, O Jesus, I have chosen. There are well-meaning teachers who fasten innocent children into old covenant spiritual bondage by inducing them to make promises to God which he's never asked them to do. They promise, then later on, perhaps, in forgetfulness, they break their promise to the Lord. And then the syndrome of bondage develops into spiritual discouragement. And parents sometimes weep their eyes out, wondering why we lose so many youth who get discouraged spiritually and leave our churches. All kinds of tragedies can develop in an atmosphere that is permeated with an old covenant Christian experience. But repentance is possible, and both Abraham and Sarah are an example of that. They waded through the discouragement of old covenant thinking. Abraham's marriage to Hagar was one very tragic step, and Sarah herself cherished bitterness against God in her heart because She could not get pregnant. And the Lord has restrained me from bearing children, she complained. You see, when bad things happen, the human heart always blames God for that rather than their own choice of unbelief. Her solution for not being able to bear a son was the old covenant idea of adopting Ishmael as her son so as to help God fulfill his promise But finally we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, that Sarah had a new experience of the new covenant repentance. It says that her heart was melted somehow by the grace of God. It says, by faith, Sarah conceived. And it is only by faith in God's promise that we bear fruit. Finally, Abraham's faith triumphed. And when he offered up Isaac as an object lesson, sensing a little of what it cost the Heavenly Father to offer up his only son, 
he had a role to play in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And God could point to Abraham and say, See, Satan, the gospel can reconcile an alienated heart so that it understands something of the love that I as a father have of giving my son as a savior of the world. That's what God's love does. It lifts us out of ourselves into the realm of his agape love. I know that you want that for your life, don't you? You want service, Genuine service is only constrained by the love of Christ. His self-denial, in which he died your death on the cross. You know, literally, one died for all so that all could live. When one died, all of us died. When one was resurrected, all of us were resurrected. When one ascended to heaven, all of us ascended into heavenly places with Christ. Did he not? And that's the gift, that's the deposit of a trillion dollars. That went into your bank account before you were born. Now, if that doesn't warm your heart, God has nothing else to warm your heart with. But I'm sure it does. And as your faith is built on that faith of Jesus, it will be fruitful for him, believe me. You will welcome him to write his laws upon your heart and upon your mind so that it will manifest itself in obedience to all of God's commandments, including that fourth commandment and including that seventh commandment. It can heal marital relations. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.